Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, short story, essay, memoir, they're all just really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from Julie Gritstenblatt, who is going to share the first pages of her debut novel, Daughters of Nantucket. Good morning, Julie. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Julie Gerstenblatt holds a doctorate in education in curriculum and instruction from Teachers Teachers College, Columbia University. Her essays have appeared in the Huffington Post, Grown and Flown, and Cognoscetti, among others. When not writing, and hopefully she's writing as much as possible because this is a gorgeous novel, when not writing, Julie is a college essay coach, as well as a producer and on-air host for A Mighty Blaze. A native New Yorker, Julie now lives in Costa Rhode Island with her family and one very smart poodle. Daughters of Nantucket is her first novel. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much again for being with us, Julie. Can you give us a quick summary of the book so that we have some context for these first pages when you read them to us? Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. So Daughters of Nantucket is about three women whose lives intersect in the days leading up to Nantucket's great fire of 1846 um, and following the fire as well. Wonderful. Okay. Now, everyone, again, as usual, the link to these pages um, is in the podcast notes. So if you really want to follow along as she reads, it's there. And it's just kind of nice to be able to do that and see, see what they're doing. But you can also just listen to. All right, Julie, let's hear these pages. Okay. Prologue, Nantucket Island. Before you begin this tale, you must go back. Not so far back, not to the beginning when natives were first naming names, claiming territories that they would eventually be stripped of. Pacamo for a clear fishing place, Sankity meaning cool hill, but far still, back to 1659 perhaps, to when European settlers with names like Starbuck and Macy, Coffin and Hussey landed at the tip of Madiket and then moved across the island where they founded a town. But what to do in this town on this faraway island? The land you see, 14 miles of it, five miles wide at its broadest, was too windswept and sandy to cultivate. And so these men learned from the Wampanoag how to spear whales off the southern coast, along the strip of beach you now call Surfside, just offshore, right there. Imagine their humped backs rising from the Melville deep sea. Shield your eyes from the sun and look. Squint back in time. Smell the rankness as each carcass is hacked into blubbery pieces, boiled down and rendered into profitable oil. Oil for wax and candles, oil to spark a flame, oil to light the entire world. But that is old news, old even to the townspeople of 1846. By now, the men have killed all the whales and through diseases, all the natives too. The families of those founding settlers have multiplied and gotten wealthy, so very rich. They have built up their small town on a gentle slope, wooden house next to wooden house next to wooden house, structures that grow from modest to grand and grander still, a tightly packed, densely populated and busy commercial port anchored at its piers by hundreds of barrels of oil. Nantucket is now the whaling capital of the world. Only where are the whales? 
Sailors can no longer find such creatures within a day's journey, within a week's journey, even within a year or two. They must now venture for four years at a time to hunt in the Pacific, rounding Cape Horn and crossing the globe, leaving their families behind. And who is left on this windswept sandy island 30 miles out to sea? Women and girls, sisters, mothers and daughters. Women keep the island sailing smoothly. Women maintain the shops as owners and store clerks, manage the bank accounts and run the homes, feeding the little ones and the aged alike, churning butter in politics as well as the tide of gossip. Thanks to their progressive and equality-based Quaker ancestors, they are educated and outspoken, these women, living in a way that is decades ahead of their female counterparts on the mainland. Thanks also to Quaker ideals, abolitionist fervor thrives on Nantucket, making the island a safe haven for escaped slaves running from the South. Those slaves are free here, marrying one another and the few remaining Wampanoag, and have children born free. They too are educated. They too are free to go to sea and return rich. But as we well know, there are degrees of freedom. Certainly, men other than whalers live on this island too. Retired merchants and captains of whale ships, men with professions on land that help those to profit at sea, boys who are not yet men, men who want to see society advance as well as those who wish to protect the status quo. But how to prove your worth without a harpoon? There are other ways to wound and other ways to win. This close-knit community is on the brink of something historic, you see. Devout Quakers, bigots, old flames, new loves, abolitionists, titans of industry, close friends, neighbors, and acquaintances, an island of cousins, all living in homes that practically touch. And of course, the presence of all that oil, surrounded by other combustible material, rope walk, haylofts, candle factories, giant barns where sails are made. They are aware, of course, of the flammable nature of their island home, having been tested before by the great fires of 1836 and 38. This well-read and well-bred community likes to think they are prepared for anything. But do they know enough? It's July 1846 on Nantucket, and it hasn't rained for weeks. Every great fire begins with a tiny spark. All Nantucket needs now is for someone to light the fuse. Part one, heat. One week before the fire, Monday, July 6th, 1846. Chapter one, Eliza. In the heat of summer, gossip spreads through Nantucket town like wildfire. Everyone on the island knows that, including Eliza Macy. Usually Eliza enjoys the chatter of the women in town, the way her neighbors walk and talk with baskets of goods on their arms as they exchange tales along the busy brick paved and cobbled streets that lead to the harbor where thousands of kegs of oil wait to be processed and shipped. Usually she's very much a part of that very chit chat. On any given Monday, she might lean in close over a barrel of grain at Adams and Parker as so-and-so says such and such about you know who, and although she's not proud of it, Eliza has been known to follow a small cluster of ladies out of Hannah Hamblin's candy store on Petticoat Row, just to catch the end of a particularly juicy tidbit about a Starbuck or a coffin, prominent families on the island, even if she hasn't yet purchased the black licorice whips she came in for. 
but today turns out to be anything but an ordinary Monday, which is why Eliza isn't out socializing in town. Wonderful. Okay, and everyone, I had to read the first paragraph. It's actually two paragraphs of that part one because I wanted people to hear the transition from the prologue into the first chapter because there's a, an important voice transition. Okay, now we have had so many prologues this summer. They're just going like wildflower you know, fire. People just love prologues, I think, and, and publishers are letting people do it. So did you always start here? Did you always have this prologue? No, I did not. The prologue was the last thing added, and it was my agent who suggested it really like a few days before we went out with the manuscript. And yeah, she just said, and uh, my agent is Allison Hunter at Trellis, and she said something like, I feel like people need to be caught up to where and when this is. Like, yes, people know Nantucket, and sure, they have an idea, sort of, but I think it would really help to give them a bird's eye view of this island at this time. And that's what I set about to do. Wow, great, great. And did you always have, so you didn't actually read this, but right before the prologue begins, she's got a little um, quote from the Selectman of Nantucket to mainland America, uh, written in 1846. And it says, uh, one third of our town is in ashes. There's not enough food to keep widespread suffering from hunger at bay. Um, a single week. We are in deep trouble. We need help liberal and immediate, which I liked because it sets the stakes of what's going to happen. Right. Um, and so did you always have that? Yes, I did have that quote beginning it. And I thought that, you know, that set up the fact that this fire is going to be rather devastating to the island. And that has us read towards that, um, you know, towards that. I think the what I've always liked about this story and what I was drawn to from the start was the idea of dramatic irony and us knowing something that the people in the book do not. And so, um, you know, I actually did research like watching Titanic and The Perfect Storm, like rewatching films that had disasters at the core of them that were clear to the viewers that, you know, the audience knew you walk into Titanic, you know, the ship is going down. You walk, you're going to watch the perfect storm. You know, the perfect storm is coming. And I wanted that same sense for daughters of Nantucket. I wanted you to pick up the book and know the fire's coming. So. Yeah. And that's part of the power, of course, uh, Jessamyn Ward's uh, Savage the Bones has a lot of going for it because it's such a beautiful book. But she's using the Hurricane Katrina mm -hmm. um, as hanging over the family that we're we're reading about. And they don't know that the hurricane is going to be as bad, but we know that it's going to be Hurricane Katrina. Um, and so using history in this way, using these these very difficult moments of history, you know, I just read about a book, and of course, the title has flown out of my head, that was using the pandemic in the same way. Hmm. Um, uh, oh, I think it was, was it Community Board by um, oh, Tara Coughlin? I think she, I think she's like, oh, ha ha, so-and-so has just predicted that everyone's going to be sitting around, you know, making sourdough bread starters and da-da-da-da, and so he's putting money in that market. Who knows why he thinks this, but, and so it's just kind of, it's, it, oh. it, it's kind of a funny nod. I'm pretty sure it was that book. Um, 
because he can apparently this this person that they this acquaintance can predict things um and we know the reader knows oh this is the pandemic coming so we're probably going to get a lot of pandemic yes. i have seen one or two of those yeah. so far yeah it's definitely a new genre of disaster right disaster yes. books coming out and um, it just puts extra weight um and extra stakes behind everything yeah. And so in my writing workshop, um, my my friend Mark Cecil liked that so much that he's like, I want more of that. I want to know exactly when the fire is going to hit. I want a countdown. And so I added that. And that is why you hear there's part there are three parts. It's sort of a very um, typical three act structure. There's heat, there flames and ash. And after heat, um, you know the day, you know, it's July 6th and, you know, that when the fire is coming and you kind of count down. Right. And so we have, and so that's the book's clock. And this, the idea of a clock is so important to a book that we just know that something is coming and or that the characters only have so much time in order to get what they are yearning for or or avoid what they're yearning for or you know what whatever's happening um i just talked to kelly ford um whose book the hunt is going to come out at the end of july she also has she also puts her clock in the title of the chapter just like you do um and hers is hers is 24 days i think it says before before easter and her book is actually about a deadly easter hunt so hers is kind of oh. again kind of tongue-in-cheek but again Having having that sense of a clock somewhere in the book is really useful, but that you can also put it in your titles of the chapters just so that we always have that countdown going on. It just puts extra tension on everything um, and and makes and wakes all of it up. So now you said so you wrote this prologue in a few days. Yeah, the prologue came to me as sort of a download is the best way I can explain it it was like you know in the cloud through my head onto the page it it came quickly and I think because of when I wrote it um having already experienced the novel having lived with this history for two or three years um I was like oh yeah I can do that you know that sounds really fun and right away this omniscient voice also came to me that it was going to be different from the rest of of the book, it was going to have that, like when my agent said bird's eye view, I immediately thought, well, that's an omniscient view or, you know, so let me kind of hover. I just kept picturing this hovering over like a drone kind of going over the island through space and time. Um, some writers actually have used birds, oh, yeah. <laughs> points of views to, to do that sort of thing. Um, um, uh, the book Happiness by Forna, um, Amanata Forna, um, you're not getting the perspective of a fox, but you do follow a fox through an omniscient point of view through the city of London. And we actually follow the fox as it runs past all the major characters. Um, and so the fox links the whole city and almost gives us a map of the city. It's so beautifully done. I absolutely recommend looking at that. And it's such a brilliant book. Um, your omniscient voice, which I think is how the best omniscient voices work, 
and, and, and the Mnuchin voice, you want it to have a voice. You want it to have a personality. You want it to have, you know, um, even opinions. Uh, that That is what makes an omniscient voice work better than like a textbook or something very dry. I think sometimes people worry and they make it a little, the omniscient voice a little too neutral. Yours is still neutral, but there's there's some opinion here. I mean, she, the the voice she he they whatever however you would um, refer to it um, you have the families of of those founding settlers have multiplied and gotten wealthy so very rich so there is a little bit of attitude there which I think works very well now the intrusive omniscient is normally tells us exactly what we're supposed to think of things. You bend a little bit that way, but not too much. Like it's it's just a very light touch. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that you found it so quickly, and did you always know that you were going to address the reader directly, the you? No, I I didn't. I, I'm trying to think if I, because it came out just this way, um, you know what it, it was actually looking at the first line again, we had a joke in my writing workshop uh, about like, are you ready to go back to Titanic? So I did have that. And I didn't think about the you part, but I knew that phrase was the, the way, you know, we set up this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started, I was like, let me take my, let me try my hand at like that. Are you ready to go back to Titanic? So <laughs> that's the, that's the, that's what I did. And it, well, it has this oral storytelling uh feeling to it as well before you begin this tale you must go back um so it's almost like we're you know little children sitting around a fire listening to someone who is very confidently and kind of teasingly telling us this story and and it just works so well and it also puts us so we are the you the listener but it puts us right in the setting you actually say um So these men learned from the Wampanoag how to spear whales off the southern coast along the strip of the beach you now call Surfside. And the reader might be like, well, I don't call that beach Surfside or I don't, I don't, that's not me. And yet we are brought in to the place as if we are standing right there. And you actually say, just offshore, right there. And so we are right there. Um, so we feel like we're being welcomed into a world that we're already a part of. And, and that sort of trick at the opening of a book is, is just wonderful. I mean, it, it, it makes us feel like, um, it just makes us giddy and feel excited and feel like we're a part of something and that you can see us, um, which of course you can't, but um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, it's a beautiful voice. And then you end lots of really good questions i think that you use throughout who is left on this windswept sandy island 30 miles out to sea women and girls sisters mothers and daughters so that's the whole reason why you're writing about the daughters of nantucket why you're focusing on the women and then the last two paragraphs well actually a little bit before that um uh where was it they they expect that something is coming um that's that's the last two paragraphs yeah so i basically try to build as much tension and point to yes the men are away what you're going to see is a lot of women hence these daughters of nantucket 
And you're also going to see, I'm trying to build, you know, wooden house next to wooden house next to wooden house. I do a lot of repetition um, of oil and the oil, you know, oil and oil for wax and candles, oil to spark a flame, oil to light the entire world. And the idea is that that spark, you know, it's sort of like handing off one, one word in each paragraph and one, you know, sort of thread um, of these tensions that build in the novel and the things you need to know. You need to know oil. <laughs> like, remember, <laughs> this is an island that's combustible. Um, remember, wooden house next to wooden house. Like, remember, these things are also the closeness of your neighbors, both in terms of like how a fire could literally spread, but also the gossip, the the relationships, the cousins, all, you know, and then I do this dump of who those characters are from um, devout Quakers, bigots, old flames, new loves, abolitionists, titans of industry, on and on and on, so that you can feel a fire starting to kindle, yes. I hope. Um, between personalities and then also a physical fire. Yeah, this this whole combustion. Um, even though we, I don't think at that point we have a, the word fire yet until the very end. So we almost, we expect it to happen. And then you bring it about, you know, are, are they prepared for anything? Do they know enough? And then it's July, 1864 in Nantucket and it hasn't rained for weeks. And we're like, oh. <laughs> right. And then you have every great fire it begins with a tiny spark. It's it's interesting too because this is a disaster, and yet there's also something kind of exciting. Right. <laughs> I right. mean, you refer to it as a great fire, um, which could be considered a, a positive connotation of it. Right. Um, it's and it what it's what makes the whole book work because um, we're waiting for this to happen, and we're sadly we're we're waiting right. for this disaster. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. But I think the the beauty of something historic with that happened so long ago that we don't know the people we want to get to know them. And then we want to be like on this terrible journey with them. There is some sort of, um, you know, enjoyment of that. That's what, you know, that's why we read maybe to suffer somebody else's suffering as much as to experience their joys. Um, right. And yeah, so I try to bring people along. And at the Surfside thing, I did see a whale recently on that beach. And so I was like, just right there. And I can picture where I stood and where I saw that whale in 2019, I think. And, you know, they're coming back. And I think that's interesting too. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah. And then you move, okay. Then you move yeah. into the first chapter. Again, you have that one week before the fire, you set your clock, you uh, name the point of view that we're getting and you use three points of views in the book, correct? Yes, there's Eliza, Mariah, and Meg. Yeah. And you know in each chapter, you see their names, so you know ahead of time, you know. Remind um, and so so I, I just want everyone to see, so she's moving from the omniscient point of view, which again, kind of is, is far away. And then um, in terms of narrative distance, in terms of uh, poetic distance, and then we're able to dip down into the character Eliza. She does it gradually though, because even as we're introduced to Eliza, we still have a slight sense of that omniscient voice, but then we just slowly move downward into Eliza until we get uh, close to Eliza and close to the way she thinks and close to the even sometimes the type of language she might use, even though it's still third person limited. And you also use this great pivot point. So we have at the end of the prologue, 
um, about the, the spark and light the fuse. And then you have your clock one week before the fire. And then you have a little tongue in cheek in the heat of summer, gossip spent, spreads through Nantucket town like wildfire. Um, so it just feels like we're just continuing on the same line. Um, and that's something you can do when we're crossing over time period or any white space between chapters, um, point of view, any sort, when you're making those jumps, finding that pivot point or baton or handoff, it can be language, it can be an image, it can be anything, really helps us um, feel like it's it's a bridge that's carrying us over. And so you do it so well here. So as you move into the um, Eliza's point of view, now, again, you always, did you always have three points of views in this novel? I did. I have a um, hundred pages of a novel that I worked on before this. It was contemporary and it was set at a college reunion where three women go and meet up. And um, I, I didn't continue on with it, but I loved, it was the first time I had written from three points of view. And that was the lesson I got from that book, which was, wow, this is fun. Forget the one person point of view. What have you been doing with your whole life? You're going to write the next one from three points of view. So that's incredible. Was it difficult for you? So it sounded like it was just, it was fun for you. That it was kind of a, a challenge to be able to find the differences in their points of views and even the differences that might bleed through the third person voice. Yes, definitely. I'm, I, Eliza came to me first because she was a typical whaling captain's wife, kind of the person I know from Nantucket most of all. And she's very, very um, traditional, married, um, has the three daughters, um, is low on money and um, not her best self. She's quite desperate when the book opens. And I thought, who would be a good counterpoint to that kind of person? And it was Mariah Mitchell, who is an historic figure. She's a true person from history. So two of my characters are fiction, and one is a fictionalized version of a, of a true person, and really a very, very proud daughter of Nantucket, who people love. And I had to find my way into that character and make her real for me um, while keeping her authentic to the truth of the time and what we know about her, um, but but making her fun so that I could take her um, on a journey. And then, and she was very progressive. She's the first American librarian, female librarian um, and America's first female astronomer. She's smart, she, yes, very, very intelligent, independent, never married, the opposite of Eliza. And so I thought they, they should have a friendship, but they should also, you know, kind of butt heads from time to time. And the third point of view is Meg, who is a freeborn black woman. Um, I make her based on some other historic figures who would be um, coming from a family of very wealthy whaling captains and all um, Absalom Boston, for example, the first black whaling captain with an all black crew came back to Nantucket very wealthy and helped build a whole civic center of the island for black Nantucketers. So I base Meg off of that. Um, but then I am able to play with I never let you forget fires <laughs> from that yeah. first sentence on there's candles everywhere. And then there's a lot of emotional fires and racism and passion. And I play up all the kinds of fires one can think of. Oh, that's fascinating. Was it difficult for you to 
it, it's, it's, you kind of mentioned this. Was it difficult for you to find your, to feel like I can represent um, an actual person in history? I can do this. I can give myself license for this. Yeah, it took some permission, some time, and I had to give myself permission, and I had to have my writing group also help me with that. And I also spoke to Nantucketers, like um, Jason Finger, the head of the Mariah Mitchell Association, and something did happen in history that gives us a gap in Mariah's life where we don't know a lot dur during this time. And that allowed me, I was like, well, does that mean I can kind of make things up? And she was kind of like, yeah, you can, you can fill in the blanks. We don't know. And so actually I decided that Mariah is gay as the character in my novel. Um, and I just spoke on Nantucket about this, this past um, weekend for the Nantucket book festival and talked about how nervous I was about it. And of all my characters, I take the real one and decide this is, you know, I don't want to out somebody. You never want to do that ever. And even historically, someone who can't speak for herself now, who's long gone. Um, but I decided it was the right choice for her as a fictionalized character and my writing group agreed. And then the next day after I presented those pages to my writing group, my daughter came out to me feeling yeah. yes. And she said it was because of Mariah Mitchell. And I was, I said, well, if there, you know, she felt seen, she felt safe. And it was like, yeah, I got it. I've got to do this. Um, Oh, that's incredible. Oh, I'm so glad that that happened for her. Wow. Yeah. And that's why we need these characters in, yeah. in the books that we read. And then you also wrote from a Black character's point of view, was that difficult? Oh, certainly. And I spoke about that too on Nantucket because you you never want to speak for someone who hasn't you whose experience you haven't lived. Um, there is a lot right now in publishing in particular about this issue um, that goes back to American Dirt and probably earlier. Um, but Jody Picot was there too, and she was talking about the, the whole um, weekend was around freedom and freedom to read what you want um, versus, you know, banned books and freedom to write what you want, want you to write. And she said she felt it's fine for anyone to write any character as long as they do it with compassion, with skill, um, with thoughtfulness and all the things that we read so we can learn other people's experiences. If I only wrote about my white 50 year old suburban life, nobody would want to read it or you could, it could only get me so far. And um, I want to imagine other lives and, and share them with the world. And if I left that perspective out, I thought, okay, maybe I can have Meg in the book, but not tell it from her point of view. But then I have white characters trying to tell this other story. I know that seems yeah. ridiculous. I think, I think when people try this also to practice humility, because I think that's personally, I think with the American Dirt situation that the author did not react to the issue and the complaints with humility. Um, to just, you know, if, if someone complains about it, and, and someone wants to talk to you about it and talk to you about their issues with it, maybe you need to just shut up for a little bit and listen. <laughs> I mean, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you can actually be quiet and just listen and take it in and let the other person, you know, so that just practicing humility, I think is really important because you might make mistakes. 
Um, and, and that's okay too. just, just be willing to, again, listen to others and, um, and, and let them, you know, have their say in their response to the book too. It's, it's all a community of, 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 of voices when, when a book comes out. Um, Okay. People say to me that they learned about, they had no idea that this community of, um, you know, of this entire black community was living on Nantucket. I feel like good. Now you do, you know? So that makes me feel again, like I'm glad that I, you know, took the risk. Yes. Excellent. Okay. I'm going to have to let these folks get back to their writing desk. So everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. And you can also find the podcast version on any podcast platform you search for. Um, So please look for that. I'm going to let Julie have one last word here. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? I would say you can always change them and just go for it. I would also say study other first pages. Um, keep track. What I did, actually, there's a first line from um, Lori Hulse Anderson's Fever 1783 that I kind of mimicked in style for my first sentence. Mm-hmm. Um because I loved it so much and I always remembered it. So read like a writer, always keep notes and know that you can always change it. Don't be afraid. And you're always learning and learning from others. Wonderful, okay. Thank you so much, Julie, for sharing your pages with us. Um, I think this has given people a lot to think about and use for their own writing. So I'm excited by this. And I hope you have a wonderful writing day. Thank you, you too.